Okay, we'll be uh, starting, and uh, let me begin with uh, a portion of God's Word, uh, Psalm 105, verses 1 uh, through 6, Psalm 105, uh, verses 1 through 6. It's an appropriate text about remembering. Psalm 105, then, beginning at verse 1. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. Verse 5, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced you, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. At the heart of that passage is that little phrase there in verse 5, remember the wonders he has done. Uh, for the psalmist, he's probably thinking of the Exodus and uh, God's miraculous deliverance of Israel, bringing them into the land, the conquest, and so on. If we are reading this in the New Testament period, we'd be thinking of the acts that are centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, his miraculous works, but particularly his death and his resurrection. But we're living 2,000 years beyond that period. And are there no acts that God has done since the New Testament period? Well, yes, obviously. And so tonight we begin looking at uh, one of those really wonderful periods of church history, uh, namely the Reformation. I'm going to give some background to the Reformation today, and then in subsequent weeks I'll explain at the end of our time where we're going. Uh, but uh, please note uh, the, uh, the implicit uh, point that I'm making here, that is the Reformation is an act of God. It uh, doesn't mean it's, in terms of the way it works out in human society, it's perfect, but it is a recovery of the gospel. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, in uh, 2017, the quincentennial, 500 years, centennial of the nailing of the 95 Theses by Martin Luther to the church door at Wittenberg, um, there were celebrations through that year of the Reformation. But there were some evangelicals who raised the question, uh, should we be celebrating what brought division in the church. And it did bring division. It split the church in Western Europe into two main segments. Uh, one of them, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the other, Protestantism. And uh, while schism is grievous, dividing from brothers and sisters, truth is more important than unity. And the recovery of the gospel was the recovery of biblical truth, and it led, yes, it led to division. But uh, if, it, if we hadn't had that period, uh, one could hardly imagine uh, what we would have been like uh, today, 500 years on, without the preaching of the gospel during the Reformation period. And then it's been handed down. And so tonight uh, we begin uh, three months, uh, September, October, November, uh, remembering uh, the Reformation and uh, what God did then. Okay, let's uh, begin with prayer, and then uh, we'll jump into looking at the background to the Reformation period. 
Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering like this. We thank you for time, uh, for life, for being in Christ, for being part of a long heritage of people who have called upon your name and have worshipped you uh, through your Son, our Lord Jesus. And we pray that tonight uh, that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, might indeed be pleasing in your sight, that you might use our reflections uh, to help us not only understand the past, but also to live more faithfully in the present. And we ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, so tonight really is, uh, and I'm going to probably do this in all of the sessions, uh, that it'll centered around a PowerPoint presentation. Um, I want to begin with this picture in a second. So the title of the course really is Remembering the Reformation. This is the first evening, The Road to Reform. Uh, no event in church history, no event in your life takes place in a vacuum. You have things that lead up to it. And to understand an event, you need to have some idea of the context. What was it that led to that event? So for instance, we're not doing this, but if we were studying uh, the beginning of the Second World War, you just can't just jump into 1939 and just say, hey, well, you know, huh, we can understand the war about any, any uh, discussion of anything that's gone on for the previous 20 years. If we were discussing the origins of World War II, we'd have to go back to the, uh, the peace treaty, actually, that was drawn up in 1918, uh, the way that France desired to humble Germany to the point she would never again do what she had done in the First World War, and then the, the fragile democracy in Germany, the depression, the collapse of the monetary system in Germany, the rise of Nazi Germany, which has roots going all the way back, actually, to Luther's day. There is this anti-Semitism that goes all the way back into the medieval period. So, in other words, if you're trying to understand any event in history, you have to go back. Um, I love reading biographies. And I love those biographies that begin, you know, about 100 years before the subject. It takes you about 100 years to get to the person's birth. You learn about their father, their grandfather, their great-grandfather, uh, etc. So we're going to spend a little time tonight, really only tonight, looking at the background to the Reformation. But I want to begin with this picture. It's a painting, an early 20th century port painting. And it's a place in London which no longer exists. Uh, it was then called St. Paul's Cross. It was an open-air preaching context where uh, it looks like it's indoors, but it's actually open-air, um, where people could preach. Um, there is a place in London called Hyde Park, uh, Speaker's Corner, where anybody can go and speak. Well, there used to be a place where anybody could preach and known as St. Paul's Cross. And this is uh, Hugh Latimer, the preacher there. Uh, at the time, this is 1548, so he's a man in his late 60s at this point, uh, preaching before the King of England, who is 11 years old. And uh, that's Edward VI, the son of Henry. And that's uh, uh, Elizabethan, or... Uh, Tudor costumes, um, many of the portraits, we might come across a couple of these uh, in this period or larger paintings, often have dogs in them. Voila, the dog here. 
Uh, he appears to be listening intently. Um, uh, Latimer is making a point here. Uh, Latimer, Hugh Latimer, who we will talk about in the course of uh, lectures. Uh, Hugh Latimer is probably the great preacher of the day. Uh, he would die as a martyr, uh, burned at the stake in the heart of Oxford in 1555, and, um, and as a man in his 70s. Uh, Edward uh, here uh, was never a robust uh, child, and he would die in 1553 at the age of 16, but not before he had enabled the Reformation to go through in England. You might think, okay, what could a boy at 12 or 13 be doing? But he was completely supportive of the Reformation. Um, you have to remember, as we get into the, the lectures, that uh, this is a world which prevailed down to the 19th century, uh, in which there are no such things as teenagers. Uh, the, invention, the teenager is the invention of the 20th century, this long period of time, 10 years, and now we've stretched it, no offense, we've stretched it into the people's 20s, in which uh, you have this long period of education, leisure, etc., etc. Uh, in this world, uh, you're an adult at 12. Most boys and girls are out to work, and he's ruling. And he received letters, actually, from John Calvin, who addressed him as the young Josiah, but we'll get into uh, that as we go along. Now, the point of the painting for me in this uh, series of lectures is that he, Latimer here is appealing to the king here to execute the Reformation. And this is known as the magisterial Reformation. The reformers rely upon the government or try to seek to win the government to Christ to enable the Reformation to go forward. Um, we have, as Baptists, somewhat of a different opinion. Uh, we are not writing to the mayor of Hamilton to help us evangelize this city. Uh, we are not writing uh, to our prime minister to try to establish Christianity in Canada uh, because we have, have convictions regarding separation of church and state. Um, there are people who emerge in this period who believe those things. They're called the Anabaptists. Mennonites, Hutterites are their descendants uh, today. We're basically not going to be talking about them in this series of lectures. Uh, pretty well, everybody we've got to talk about, Calvin, Luther, uh, Cramner, Latimer, uh, Catherine Willoughby, known as the Puritan Duchess, all are convinced that the state must guard the theology of the church and that the church must use the state to uh, advance the gospel. And uh, so that will be a disagreement we have going forward, but we're going to kind of shelve it. And uh, maybe at a later point, we could look at the history of uh, Baptists. So I, I've, I've got, a, I think, an impossible task before me because I want to talk about six things tonight. Uh, we will have time for Q&A. Uh, I want to talk about the religious situation in Europe. Uh, when you ask the question, so why, why was the Reformation needed? Why, why remember this period? Well, if you look at the religious situation at the end of the Middle Ages, it's interesting. And uh, I use that word interesting as the way the British use it, which means weird and wild. Uh, 
you know, if, if you're ever in a conversation with me and I say, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it might mean one or two things. It, mean, it might mean it is interesting. Or it might mean that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but I'm, I'm too polite to tell you. Oh, that's interesting. Anyway, so we'll see that the end of the Middle Ages is very interesting. Uh, superstition, relics, the papacy, and then a thing called semi-Pelagianism, which, as we'll see, is kind of a way of saving yourself, uh, not relying totally on the grace of God. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that there were movements for reform before the Reformation. And then I'm going to talk about three things very quickly. A thing called the Renaissance, which is a cultural movement, the invention of the printing press, and nationalism. This is a, a scene from, uh, it's a very famous scene, uh, painted by a Dutch painter, Bruegel, uh, of uh, a winter, a winter scene where some hunters are coming back with their dogs. So I hope you can see this at the back. Uh, I want to begin with superstition and relics. Uh, Owen Chadwick once said that the Reformation happened not so much because Europe was irreligious, it's very different from our world, but because it was religious. And it was wrongly religious. And um, let me focus on one thing, and that is relics. Um, this is a portrait of uh, Veronica. Uh, Veronica, very common Catholic name. My mother was called Veronica, shortened to Vera, Roman Catholic home. And uh, she is supposed to, um, as Christ was on his way to Golgotha, uh, he falls and she has a, um, a hanky or a handkerchief and she pulls out and wipes his face the sweat off of his face. And the story goes that after he had passed, he looked at the, the cloth, and there was the face of our Lord. And there was a painting that was passed down. There was a cloth in the Middle Ages that supposedly was the cloth that Veronica had used. Uh, this is Thomas Beckett. We're going to talk about him. Um, this is a, uh, a photo I, I took and saw. It's in the cathedral at Cologne, or Cologne on the Rhine. Uh, it contains the three heads of the three wise men. So, uh, let me jump right here. I, I don't have time to talk about the bubonic plague and the way it deepened the fear of death in Europe. But he, one writer has said the true religion in the Middle Ages is the worship of relics. Um, as you move out of the ancient world, the 500s, 600s, uh, the church loses literacy. Uh, literacy levels drop in Europe from around 20%, 25% maximum, to about 2%. So that would mean if we take a room like this, there's probably maybe 60 people here. I, I shouldn't do this. I'm no good at math. But maybe the people in the front row, the four people here in the front row, are able to read and write. The rest of you are illiterate. As it turns out, as you move on into the Middle Ages, you would have priests who would memorize the Mass, memorize what they had to say in Latin, but they wouldn't understand it. Increasingly, Latin is not a language that is spoken as a vernacular language. And uh, they can't read the scriptures. And so it's not surprising. It's a deeply religious world, very different from our world, I think, in many respects. 
Well, uh, I'll have to qualify that. Uh, every human being is religious. But it's not outwardly religious. Like uh, uh, Our world is not outwardly religious like this world. Um, very few people in this world that you could describe as an atheist. Um, so you've got uh, people who are deeply religious with no access really to the scriptures. They're not hearing the preaching of the word. And not surprisingly, they're... Their religious convictions run in all kinds of interesting directions. Uh, so, one of the most important things for a church to have, so when we were building or rebuilding and added a section to this church, if this was the Middle Ages, uh, the pastors would have been eager to get relics of saints that we would have at certain places in the church, maybe at the front of the church, uh, the relics were two, had two purposes. One is these were usually body parts of very holy people. They helped to sanctify the building. So the building becomes a holy building. Uh, also because if we were in the Middle Ages building this building, it would probably take 60 to 80 years to build. So how do you keep the cash flowing? Well, you, if you have a number of very important relics, Pilgrims will come to see the relics or to touch the relics, and they'll pay. Why would you want to come and see the relics? Well, because uh, there is a conviction that when you die, uh, all of us who believe in Christ, are most of us aren't going to heaven directly. Uh, I shouldn't talk for you, but let's talk for myself. Uh, I'm not going to heaven directly. I'm not holy enough. Uh, so I'm going to purgatory. And I'm going to be in purgatory maybe a million years, working off my sins. But if I go and see the relics in a given church, I'll get time off. <laughs> and uh, there is a whole theology about this. I'm going to leave. I'm enough said at that point. I'm going to leave this to when we get to Luther. Luther had, well, Luther's protest against Rome begins with this whole issue of purgatory and what we call indulgences. So churches would want to have relics. Um, Thomas Beckett was uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he was slain in 1170 in the cathedral in Canterbury. Uh, the King of England, Henry II, was in a quarrel with him. There are numerous quarrels between kings of England and uh, their bishops and archbishops, and actually other individuals. We'll see one at the end of our time tonight, and it had to do with who's, who's basically in charge of England. And the Pope claimed not only to be in charge of the church, but also in charge of the entirety of Western Europe. No king could properly be anointed king or queen, queen without his permission. Often the kings and queens protested against this, and often they had to protest to the various local bishops or archbishops, and so there was frequently conflict. And at one point, in an unguarded moment, Henry II said, Who will rid me of this priest? And four of his knights took him at his word, rode post-haste to Canterbury, and slew Thomas a Becket uh, before the altar. Uh, bad news for the king. Uh, I mean, the king immediately regretted being the instigator of this. It was, in, as I say, an unguarded moment. He would have to do deep penance. Uh, Beckett was regarded as a remarkably holy person. He's not dead a few moments, but the priests in the 
in the uh, cathedral knew exactly what to do. They took, a, took his body, put it up on the altar, and began to press his body so the blood would flow out. They got troughs around the altar so the blood would flow out in the troughs, and then they would dip small little pieces of cloth in the troughs. And then they would later sell them as Beckett relics. Uh, many years later, a man uh, had uh, a, a context where he had bought a Beckett relic, kept it on his person. He comes home one day, he finds his house is on fire. No problem. Gets a pole or a stick, sticks the Beckett relic on the end of the pole, waves it to the house, the fire goes out. Now, I'm not guaranteeing the history of this. <laughs> I'm just telling you the stories that were passed down. And so Beckett relics were very, very, very significant. Beckett's uh, place of burial becomes a major pilgrimage, probably the most leading pilgrimage, uh, place of pilgrimage in England during this period of time. Um, or the, uh, the church at Cologne, uh, Cologne uh, which has the three heads of the wise men. Right? That's how we know there were three wise men. Cause the, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, three heads. Probably my favorite one. This one is a bit gruesome, so uh, be prepared. Uh, warning in advance. Hugh of Lincoln in England uh, is engaged in the project of building the great cathedral in Lincoln. You can still see it. Its early stages were in the 1100s. And he, he, needs, he needs a relic. And he hears about the fact that there's a, a monastery in France, a place called Fécamp, uh, where they have the forearm of Mary Magdalene. Perfect. So <laughs> off, he goes, off he goes to the monastery and asks the monks, do you think you could kind of give me half of the arm? This is, this is all true. You know, I, we, I, the thing about the Beckett relic with the, uh, the fire, that's legendary. But what I'm about to tell you is this is all true, written down history. The monks, there's no way. I mean, the saint wanted her forearm to come to Fécamp, not to go off to Lincoln. So there's no way they're going to do it. So uh, Hugh's trying to figure out how, how's he going to get this. And he sees his opportunity one day at the Mass. All the monks are engaged in either prayer or going up to receive uh, the Mass. And he, he's got his moment. He sneaks off to where the, the arm is. Then he realizes he doesn't have a knife but he's got his teeth. <laughs> One of the monks spies him, is horrified. What on earth are you up to? Yes, there's you with the arm, trying to chew a portion of it It's obviously not Mary Magdalene's arm, but God, like, this is a 1,200 years later. Whose arm was it? We have no idea. And it's, it's a horrifying story. And needless to say, poor Hugh gets sent post-haste back to, to England without any part of Mary Magdalene's forearm. Uh, it's deeply disturbing. If you, I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny. Uh, John Calvin would write a book. Uh, John Calvin had a very keen sense of satire, and he would write a book called On Relics. Um, and he would recount how, for instance, uh, there were about four churches in Europe who claimed to have the head of John the Baptist. And so she said, okay, so what was he, a four-headed monster? You know? Or he said, there's enough, there's enough pieces of the true cross that our Lord died on. 
for Noah to build his ark. And you can, <laughs> you can see the, the satire. Um, but all of this is very, very, this is very significant. And um, my mother grew up in a very superstitious Irish Catholic home with a granny, uh, my granny praying for a priest in the family. I don't think being a Baptist church historian uh, fits the bill. And um, uh, I remember my granny sending my mom uh, a portion of, again, it was a forearm, uh, of the bone of St. Martin of Tours, who died around 400. And my mom used to wear it in a little green pouch around her neck. And, um, and then my mom was converted and threw the pouch away. And I, I wish she had kept it. I, it'd be a great uh, object lesson. But anyway. Um, then we have the papacy. So you can see why the reformers. I mean, none of the relic stuff is in the Bible. And it, they're deeply concerned that people are putting their trust in the wrong place. Then we have the, the papacy. This is a medieval a, a, a Renaissance picture of the coronation of a pope. Um, if we had time, we could go back and look at the way the papacy developed. It begins with a man named, really with Leo I, up here, uh, who was pope from around 440 to 461. He makes claims that uh, Jesus uh, gave certain privileges to, the, to Peter, Matthew 16. Uh, Peter was the foundation stone of the church. Peter was the judge of the church. The, uh, the, uh, the doorkeeper of the kingdom. And these privileges get passed down to his heirs, who are the bishops of Rome. And he's using, uh, he's got, he's using Roman legal arguments coupled with his reading of Matthew 16. By the time you get down to Boniface VIII, right here, Pope from 1294 to 1303, the Pope is now claiming, not, not simply that he is the head of the church, but this, it is altogether necessary to salvation for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff, the word pontiff being an alternative word for Pope. And so there is massive authoritarianism. The reformers are not opposed to authority in the church. Obviously, there are leaders in the church. What they're opposed to is, number one, this kind of uh, uh, monarchical authoritarianism. One man claiming to be the head of the entirety of the churches in Europe. And if you're not in communion with him, you're damned. At the same time, massive corruption, uh, sexual immorality, nepotism, and a variety of other things. So you have a number of popes who are... Uh, making their nephews cardinals. We have examples in the late 1400s of popes who are making their eight-year-old nephew the Bishop of Milan. And uh, obviously they'd have somebody who would do the duties, but the money would primarily go to the nephew. He'd pay somebody else to do, out of a po small portion of the, the finances, he'd pay somebody to do all the duties of that bishop. And nepotism was, was rife throughout the Roman church at, in the late Middle Ages. And then in addition to that, sexual immorality. So one of the popes in the 1490s has an illegitimate son. 
um, probably through a prostitute. Uh, he would like to have made the guy a cardinal. Uh, big only problem was this guy's favorite pastime was roaming around Rome with a, a gang of youths uh, raping nuns. And uh, so you've got a situation in which you have a church that is deeply corrupt. Now, please note, this is very important. Um, often Protestants think, okay, that corruption in the Roman church continued down to the present day. Uh, the Reformation forces the Roman church to clean up the papacy. And you do have, I think, uh, attempts to reform the papacy from within the Roman church itself. And then obviously the Reformation, the reformers, are our response to all of this. And then we have a thing called semi-Pelagianism. So the, the New Testament, how am I saved? I'm saved by grace. It's God's free, unmerited gift uh, to me of salvation. How am I saved? I'm saved through faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it accompanied, accompanied by works? Yes, of course it is. Uh, out of faith flows works. But faith, my, save, my salvation is not based on faith plus works. It's based on faith alone. We'll see, we'll see this more when we get to, to Luther and Calvin. But in the, ref, in the medieval period, you had this very complex understanding that I developed of how we're saved. First of all, you need to do the best you can on the basis of your own natural ability. And then, if you do that, then God will give you an infusion of grace through the sacrament of the Mass. And then you cooperate with that grace, and then eventually you get the reward of eternal life as a just due or a just reward. In other words, you're saved by grace and works, or you're saved by grace and moral effort, or you're saved by grace of faith and works. Please note, nobody in the Middle Ages argued you're saved by works alone. No Roman Catholic theologian ever said that. But it's faith and works, and, or grace and works. In other words, it compromises the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's technically known as semi-Pelagianism because there was a man in the 5th century who Augustine responded to called Pelagius who argued that everybody when they're born is born completely innocent. And if we only put our minds to it, we can live a perfect life. Nobody's ever done it except for Jesus. But doesn't mean we can't try. Uh, Pelagius was eventually condemned as a heretic. But the default, this is very important, the default position, I think, of human beings is this idea that somehow I can, I, can, I can win salvation. I can do it. And it's not surprising in the Middle Ages, even though Augustine's emphasis was we are saved by grace alone, and Augustine's the great theologian for the Roman Church in the Middle Ages, semi-Pelagianism creeps in the back door. Are there, is there nobody who protests? Yes. And we, we could look at a number of figures. Uh, John Wycliffe here. Um, this is, these are not contemporary portraits. These are portraits later. Uh, he may not have looked like this at all. Um, born around 1330. By the 1370s, he is the leading theologian in Europe. He's based at Oxford. Um, he is used as a, uh, as a 
as, as part of a negotiation between the King of England and the King of France over various property issues. Uh, the kings of England claimed to be the kings of France all through the Middle Ages. And uh, he finds himself being asked to go and negotiate certain uh, uh, part of certain discussions between the King of England and King of France. And when he gets there, he finds papal representatives. And it raises the question in his mind, what on earth is the papacy doing in disputes about land between two kings? And he determines when he gets back to England to begin to research this, and he begins to write a series of books, eventually culminating in his conviction that the Pope is probably not the head vicar of Christ, but he may well be the head vicar of the devil and the Antichrist. Um, he is put on trial by Roman authorities in England. In the middle of the trial, there's an earthquake. Stops the whole thing. The Roman authorities claimed it was God's sign. Wycliffe should have been burned. Wycliffe claims, no, no, it was God's sign that they were wrong to put him on trial. Uh, he would have been burned if he hadn't had very strong protection by a man named the Duke of Lancaster, John Gaunt. Um, he would die in 1384. Um, it's also Wycliffe uh, who begins the translation of the Bible into English. Uh, so much so that the Roman church will respond in England that it is, in 1408, they pass a law. It is illegal to have the Bible in English, to have a portion of it, to hear it, to read it, or to have it preached. So you need to keep that in your mind when we get to William Tyndale, who will translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into English. Um, during, the early 13, during the early 1400s, there was a lot of trade between England, here Wycliffe, and Bohemia, or what is now the Czech Republic. And in fact, the King of England, Richard II, will marry a Bohemian princess. And this man, Jan Hus, or Jan Hus, his last name means goose. Again, keep that in mind, because uh, that'll come up, not tonight, but later. <clears throat> Janus begins to get some of the books of Wycliffe. This trade not only involves trading goods and a bohemian princess, but also books. And uh, he's reading Wycliffe, and he comes to similar convictions and begins to preach against uh, the papacy, preach against indulgences. Uh, in 1415, he is invited to go to a council at Constance in Switzerland. And he's scared a little because he doesn't know what reception he'll receive. He's offering, he says, if you come, we guarantee safe conduct. He goes, he is arrested for heresy, put on trial, and burned at the stake. On the day of his burning, we're told uh, the priests put a paper crown on his head with three painted devils wrestling for his soul. They formally condemned him to the devil, and he began to sing a hymn, which, in which he committed his life to the Lord Jesus. Um, that event is very, very important because when Luther is invited to go and debate Roman Catholics, his friends will tell him, don't trust them, they'll burn you. Uh, he will go in, he'll nonetheless go, uh, but we'll see how that works out.
Then we have the Renaissance. Um, the Renaissance is a cultural movement. Um, it's very, very important. Um, it develops things like uh, banking. Uh, before the Renaissance, there are no banks in Europe. Oldest bank in Europe just closed, uh, founded around 1054 in Siena. Um, uh, banking is important because it means you've got excess wealth. Most people in Europe are simply earning enough to get by, obviously not the aristocracy. But once you get the development of wealth, you get a development of a middle class, and you've got people who've got money who can do a variety of things with money and support, particularly support, cultural activities. And the Renaissance begins in northern Italy with a, in a variety of little city-states, you know them well, Venice and Milan, Siena, uh, Florence, Genoa. These, these, sent, these little city-states, uh, which are independent, there's no country called Italy until the 19th century. These independent city-states will develop incredible wealth, trading in the Mediterranean with uh, Muslims, as well as even further afield, Marco Polo making his way to China along the old Silk Road that ran through Asia. And it'll be these men who finance um, uh, various expeditions to Africa, to the New World, etc. And in addition to that, cultural pursuits. And uh, there emerges men who can read about the Greek and Romans, and they begin to realize that Greek and Roman culture is very different from the culture of their day. In fact, in their minds, it's a lot better. It's the Renaissance scholars who coined the term Middle Ages, right? So you got Middle Ages, we're in the middle, uh, we got that period of the Middle Ages be between the Renaissance, which means rebirth, and the ancient world. And you got this bleak period in here called the Middle Ages. Um, you get uh, the development of individualism. Uh, Western culture is quite unique or in around-the-world cultures. Uh, one of the strongest elements of Western culture is individualism. You just have to look at our movies, you know, John Wayne movies, Harrison Ford movies. You take your pick. The, the individual against the community or the individual against authorities. And uh, are we are deeply shaped by individualism. And let me give you an example. Um, I'll come back to this in a minute. So, um, before the rise of the Renaissance, artists would do their work. They'd never sign their paintings. They're doing it for God, for the glory of God, for the church. Um, this painting hangs in, uh, did hang in the reception room of a very famous family in Florence, the de' Medici's. Enormously wealthy. They'll actually control the papacy for a while. Who, get, who gets appointed to the, be pope? And uh, they commissioned this man, Bonozzo Gozzoli, to depict the wise man coming to see our Lord. And so you got all the wise men with all their hangers on, etc., coming to see, to see Jesus. And uh, probably Gozzoli was told, now when you paint the wise men, make sure you paint the de Medici's as the wise men. So we have other pictures, paintings of the de Medici's, and so we're able to see, you know, this is one of them, 
this is one of them, etc., etc. You know, <laughs> the head of the household, his brother, his nephew, they're all, they're all in the painting. Well, Benozzo Gozzoli was not going to let it go at that. So take a look at this little section here. You can see it. It's very indistinct, probably. I'll blow it up for you. There we go. There's Spinoza Gozzoli. He painted himself in the picture. <laughs> and just to make sure you know who he is, he's put his name on his, on his hat. And that hung in the New Medici. I don't know if the Medici's noticed it. Um, it's this huge, it, the painting actually, it's, it's huge. It runs the whole length of a wall like that. I mean, it's big. And uh, this could easily get lost in the, in the details. Where's Waldo? <laughs> Where's Waldo? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, in other words, what you've got here is painters now realizing their importance as individuals. And uh, it's a very, this little painting in one sense is a very important mark of the way culture is developing. Western culture is deeply shaped by individualism. For good, Luther will emphasize, it is not enough to belong to a Christian community. You must have believed on the Lord Jesus yourself. And for ill, uh, what we see in our day is the long-term results of an individualistic strain in our culture, destruction of community life, destruction of family life, and so on. Um, this one is fascinating. The Renaissance generated all kinds of money. Um, <clears throat> Quentin Matzis is a Flemish a painter, painted in 1514. This is a moneylender, counting his money. His wife, this is very significant, his wife is reading, if, you, if we turn this painting upside down, there's a painting here of the Virgin Mary with Jesus. She's reading a prayer book, or is she? L look where her eyes are. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. You know, here she is, outwardly, supposedly religious. She's reading a prayer book, but he's, he's caught the moment where she's really not interested in the prayer book. So that's the, the, the Renaissance. The Renaissance is very significant because the Renaissance scholars will argue, how can we renew our culture? Well, we have to go back to the sources, the Greeks and Romans. And they have a little phrase called ad fontes, F-O-N-T-E-S. Back to the sources. And it's uh, a phrase that deals with water. So some of the great highways in Europe are the great rivers, the Danube, the Rhine. And... Um, <clears throat> So if you ever get the opportunity to do one of those boat trips on the Rhine or the Danube, they're absolutely fabulous. Um, my wife and I have done twice down the Rhine, and you, you don't get any of the, you know, the, the sensations out in the ocean. You don't have to worry about seasickness. And when you go to sleep at night, you wake up in the morning at, your, at the next destination. You don't have to pack up and whatever. And uh, the one trip we did, we started in Basel in Switzerland, and we went down... Uh, down into the plain of Germany, uh, Marburg, um, Heidelberg, Strasbourg, uh, then eventually Dordrecht in Holland, or the Netherlands and Amsterdam. And um, 
in the Middle Ages, that river, the Rhine, was the source of a variety of things. It was drinking water. It was the source for cleaning. It was a highway, right, of boats. You, you would have to go way up into the, to Basel and even further up into the Alps for it to be pure water you could drink. The further downstream you get, people are dumping their refuse into the water, uh, garbage, they're washing clothes in the water. It gets dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. So if you want the pure water, you go back to the sources. Every reformer began his career, except for one, Martin Luther. Every reformer began his career as a Renaissance scholar. He was trained, if you want to renew our culture, you go back to Greek and Roman sources. Notice the idea. If we want to renew the church, we go back to the scriptures. It's a, ve it's a very, very important uh, little principle. And then two other things very quickly. This is a, a major uh, um, Renaissance figure, Erasmus. Uh, I'll jump over him. Um, we'll get to him when we get to William Tyndale. Um, he, he's significant because he produces the first Greek New Testament, uh, printed Greek New Testament. Talking of printing, um, when uh, we were setting up the, um, the uh, computer and the, the PowerPoint presentation, uh, uh, Pastor Strickland said that uh, Luther didn't have to worry about any of this stuff, which is true. Uh, but Luther would not have done what he could have done without that. Wycliffe and Jan Hus did not have that, the printing press. And they burned Hus, and that was pretty well the end of his reform. Uh, followers of Wycliffe, known as Lollards, they'd arrest them and burn them, and that would basically shut them up. Luther had this, the printing press. This man in, in, from Mainz, which is off a little offshoot off the Rhine River, Johann Gutenberg was a goldsmith. Somewhere around the 1450s, he begins to experiment with how to produce uh, pages for a book. In the Middle Ages, you had two ways of doing that before Gutenberg. One is you could copy the whole book by hand. You'd obviously have to get a very professional scribe. It's going to take a while. It's got to be very carefully done because it's going to be read by other people. The other way is to get a block of wood, carve out the whole page. You have to do it backwards because then you ink it and then put uh, uh, paper down and then press onto it to get the, the image onto the paper. That's also very time consuming. You gotta have a block of wood for every page. So uh, Gutenberg comes up with the idea, because he's, he's used to dealing with metals, mostly silver and gold, but he comes up with the idea, what if I had little metal letters for each letter, I had a frame, I assemble them for the page, ink it, and then once we've done enough copies of that page, we break it down, reassemble it for the next page. It's absolutely brilliant. It revolutionizes printing. It basically is the way we did printing down to the 1960s, 70s. Uh, obviously much more sophisticated, but that basic idea was still the basic way of, of printing books, newspapers, magazines, etc. And what that means is that people can produce books far more quickly. And it is not going to be easy to shut them down. 
the first printing press is at Mainz. Uh, it's a medieval picture of it. <clears throat> Within 50 years, there's printing presses all throughout Europe. So when Luther comes along and nails his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, within weeks, that uh, text has been distributed all through Germany. So Martin Luther will write 30 books between 1517-1520, around uh, 10,000 copies of each, uh, well, uh, about 3,000 copies of each of those books. It's about 30,000 books. As I said, math is not my strong suit. Um, John Calvin, this is, this is really amazing. Between 1545 and his death in 1564, 45% of all the books published in Europe were John Calvin's. It'd be like 45% of all the books published in North America being, say, John MacArthur or R.C. Sproul or John Piper. There is no, now you can see the enormous impact of the Reformation because it's, it's, it's propagated through books and the printing press. Uh, Luther, Luther would uh, have a very interesting comment where in the book of Revelation, there's an angel that goes around the world preaching the gospel. Luther would say, the angel is actually the printing press. Uh, nobody else would believe uh, that or follows him in that regard, but it gives you an idea of his high regard for printing. And then one final point, and we'll have very quick time for questions. Nationalism. Uh, the Reformation is a period of nationalism. 300 years earlier, if you had asked a typical European in Germany, what are you? Well, I'm a member of the Roman Catholic Church, true church of God. He wouldn't say initially, I'm German. In the late medieval period, you get the development of nationalism, in which people start to affirm that they are Germans or English or Swiss or French or what have you. Um, part of that is a response to the, the way in which the medieval church basically sought to squash any attempt at independence from the various countries. And one of the great stories is this man right here, Henry or Heinrich IV, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. He got into a quarrel with the Pope in 1077, Pope Gregory VII, sometimes known as Hildebrand, over the appointment of a German bishop. And uh, Heinrich said, there's no way I'm appointing the guy you want. Don't like him. And, uh, well, Gregory could solve that one easily. He excommunicated him. Which meant Heinrich's going to hell. His whole family's going to hell. And anybody in his country who kills Heinrich, is doing God a favor. Not good for the ruler. So finally, Heinrich's friends say, you, you got to go and beg forgiveness of the Pope. So in, in the winter of 1077, he crosses the Alps, and the Pope is in a northern retreat called Canossa. And uh, here's the Pope, up here. And uh, Heinrich... You don't see it exactly, but he's barefoot. He has him stand out in the snow for three days uh, before he'll receive him. A number of years ago, when I think it was Pope John Paul II went to Cuba, somebody asked Castro, <laughs> this is kind of odd, you know, like you're a communist. You're not really into the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, like, what, what's going on here? 
And Castro, very interestingly, said, well, for, for, for one thing, I'm not going to Canosa. And he expected, very interesting, he expected people to know the story of when this man went to, 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 uh, to beg forgiveness. In other words, the Pope basically is in control of everything. Uh, individual rulers are scared silly. And then you contrast that now with Henry VIII. Henry VIII in the 1520s realizes that he shouldn't have married the woman he married, Catherine of Aragon. She had been his brother's wife. Um, his father had claimed his brother had died within a year of their marriage. His father claimed the marriage had never been consummated. And asked the Pope to ratify Henry, the younger son's marriage to this Spanish princess. The Pope did. And uh, about 20 years later, Henry's in a quandary. Uh, Mary can't give him a, a son. She's give, given him a daughter. Mary, uh, uh, sorry, Catherine can't give him a son. Uh, she's given him a daughter, Mary. So he writes to the Pope, after reading the passage in Leviticus, thou shalt not marry thy brother's wife which has got to do probably with divorce, not wid uh, widowed. And he says, I should never have married her. It's obvious God's curse is on my marriage. Uh, do you think you could give me a divorce? And uh, Pope would have given him a divorce, except for the, the woman, Henry's wife, was the aunt of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V of Spain, who finds out about it and says to the Pope, if you give that man a divorce and shame my aunt in the face of Europe, it'll be the last thing you ever do. So the Pope plays for time. You know, maybe one of them will die, or give up. And finally, Henry's had enough. And he make, somebody had told him, and this is kind of simplifying things, if you were the head of the church in England, you could give yourself your own divorce. Right? Makes himself the head of the church. And grants his own divorce. The Pope excommunicates him. Big deal. That's, a, that's very interesting. This man crossed the Alps in the middle of winter, stood out in the snow for three days because he'd been excommunicated by the Pope. Uh, 400 years later or so, 500 years later, Henry's excommunicated and he doesn't give a hoot because he's now the master of England. And he doesn't have to worry about a man down in Rome giving him orders. Uh, this will come up again and again and again. The Reformation period is an era of nationalism and a breakdown of international relations. Okay, that is a really quick overview. Why did the Reformation take place? Uh, because of irreligion in the Roman Church, because of authoritarianism in the rulers of the Roman Church, because of a loss of the understanding of salvation, because of the Renaissance, where to renew the Church, you go back to the Scriptures, the printing press, the rise of nationalism. Okay, we'll uh, pick up. Next week, I want to pick up with Luther. Uh, Luther's a fun guy to talk about, but he's also a remarkable uh, a theologian and a man uh, whom God gave an enormous courage to and in many ways is the pathfinder of the Reformation. Let's, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, for the fact that you have illuminated them. We thank you for the gospel and for the hearing of that, those great truths that have brought salvation to our hearts. And we do pray that as we think about the Reformation, that you would help us appreciate what we have received, and that we would pass it on faithfully. 
Now may your peace be our portion this night and throughout the week to come. For Christ's sake, amen.